The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. My family thinks I'm crazy. A podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most. Because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that I got a ministry. Basilisk, tulpas, familiars, and daemons. Are these creatures from beyond the threshold of our conscious mind, apart or separate from us? Like benevolent parasite, they're created in our psyche at the expense of precious lifeblood. They manifest will, magnifying it for their keeper and affecting the causal realm from within. Spawn of the magical human, these beings mystify onlookers and bargain a blood pact with their sire to eventually be seeded with soul. Here to discuss this arcane science is podcaster and armchair researcher, Juan Ayala, a friend of mine who joins me here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Also, Thomas, aka Paranoid American, joins us partway through this conversation. I'm Mystic Mark. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy this conversation with Juan Ayala and Thomas from Paranoid American. cruise whatever and i heard what we were talking about but i she's oh yeah people on cruises are in a trance right it's a weird thing to say right and if you think of a vessel right like an alchemical vessel a boat is a vessel they call it a vessel and i think that i'm not into etymology a lot but i think that even like language the way that they word things i think it has a magical aspect to it so when she's all the people in a trance 
And I'm like, oh, it's weird because I'm going to be going literally into the Bermuda Triangle on this vessel or cruise ship. But what are the chances that maybe these people are in a trance? Because there's very NPC-like behavior, just like being off. I don't know, man. I think that some people, they have the homunculus never gave back their driver's seat and they're just operating on whatever it is. I wonder, because based on that, it's almost like you're born because with that feeling because you know that in a past life a homunculus has a very likely chance of taking over your body and not giving it back so the second you're out of the womb no matter what kind of animal you are there's this feeling of that's mine ladies and gentlemen we are back again here on Illuminati can I mean my family thinks I'm crazy and yes I did just misspeak but it was intentional because my friend Juan Ayala returns to the my family thinks I'm crazy podcast which we've done so many shows together I can't even remember when you were ever on the my family thinks I'm crazy podcast just as a guest has that happened yet or is this your first time being solo interviewed by me this is the first time solo i've been on but it's been usually with somebody else huh interesting so we're here solo and even on one yeah and even this time i almost bitched out and got thomas in here for this but i think i'm finally ready i've studied Juan for months nay years and i'm finally ready to interview him one-on-one so long as my live stream doesn't totally shit me out oh encoding overloaded maybe we shouldn't stream until i have better internet anyways hi juan glad to have you here (laughs) you're kind of kind of lagging out a little bit bro well i sound really good and crystal clear on my end so everybody listening to my recording will know what i'm saying but i guess yeah you can't hear what i'm can you hear me now you can hear me now I think we're good now. Yeah, okay. but it's doing that whole where you play, where you stop and then you go really fast and it's catching up like the connection. <laughs> oh, gosh. All right. Well, my recording is fine. Yours is a little, has some latency. My fault, not yours. But okay. Okay. Restart. Here we are on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. And uh, yeah, we settled it. Juan has never been on the show as an individual guest. And he's here to pop my cherry as an interviewer. So what's going on, Juan? Welcome to the podcast. How are you, brother? Just want to say I'm a big fan of my parents think I'm crazy. I think it's such a great podcast, covers so many topics. And I just, I love it, man. So thank you for having me. But not much is really going on. Like I, I was ranting to you a little bit before we jumped on about how sometimes with this whole research game, spread myself too thin right? Complain about it. Say, I'm not going to do it again. End up doing it again. Complain about it some more. Say, I'm not going to do it again. And it's a whole, this endless cycle of this esoteric research game, but life's good. Can't complain. Healthy. Family's good. So I'm here to party, bro. I'm here for a good time, not a long time. So let's get to it, bro. Let's get into it. Yeah. We have some really fascinating things to talk about today. But considering that I haven't had you on the show for a proper interview yet, 
I do want to ask you a little bit about your time before starting the one-on-one podcast. I know you you had a podcast before you officially called it the one-on-one podcast, but even before that, you have sort of a unconventional path than most podcasters and even just most people. I haven't met many Pentecostal Christians just because I don't live in the South. I think it's more popular in the South. It's, there's more Pentecostal churches down there. But I've heard you say in other interviews that you experienced some supernatural, some strange paranormal things through being a Pentecostal Christian. So did you experience anything like yourself, like an enlightening experience, quote unquote? What was that like? being a Pentecostal Christian. So when I say I've experienced certain things, it's more from the point of witnessing like people be healed or people who couldn't otherwise walk. All of a sudden they start, they get up and they start walking. And it happens when the Holy spirit, if you will, is in the house or whatever they call it. And being part of the worship group so being part of i was a guitarist for my church for a lot of years and being part of that you could feel the energy when it would start to produce and i think it what's happening with all my research in the occult is it's the collective conscious right not throwing out the baby with the bath water as far as trying to disprove religion and trying to disprove God because I'm not here for that. I'm just saying from a logical perspective, as logical as it it can get from the collective conscious because even that is subjective, but I think that it was people right manifesting this collective I don't want to say egregore thought form, but the energy man, it would just start to it would just start to manifest and you could feel the change in the air. It was a very weird experience. You could feel it. You can feel the tension, the energy. And I would see things again. I don't know if it was the Pentecostal way where they would faint and jump around and speak in tongues. Cause that's part of it. But I, I saw other things other than that, as far as like people being healed and you know, like miraculous Oh, it's got a name like spontaneous healing or whatever it's called. I forget the name exactly, but yes, I did experience it. I never experienced anything as far as like an enlightenment or anything of that nature, but I did feel what they would call or refer to as the Holy spirit. And I think that a congregation together would manifest that. Yeah. Right? When a group of people comes together, they're able to cause some sort of change in the atmosphere, especially when they're all on the same frequency, which that's what we were there for, though, as the worship to line people up with the music, lyrics, and the praise. Prayer is a sort of meditation. It's magic. You're projecting things out into the ether. And I'm not saying I don't, again, I'm not saying I don't believe in God. I do believe in God. I do believe that there is a higher power that is orchestrating everything and holding everything together. I just don't subscribe to the mainstream dogmatic views of mainstream religion i think it's more of power and greed right they want money all the time and i think that once you start to do that then it starts to corrupt the religious movement if you will yeah it's funny i believe that 
miracle has another term within either Catholicism or maybe just Christianity. And it's funny how they do that, right? How they compartmentalize certain, the stream is lagging. We're just going to, we're just going to rock solid through it. Okay. That's why I did speaker view because we're still going to use this episode whether it goes out to the live stream people or not. So we'll just burn right through it. Like there's no live stream problems. You know, for people who want me to do live streams, consider this a test run. Okay. If it's a little laggy, if it's a little shitty, this is a test run. I am moving into a new apartment eventually. So I will have better internet soon within the next two months. So, but anyways, enough about that. It is funny how they kind of, again, compartmentalize religion and these different aspects of our reality. I think in the Catholic church, they have a different word for miracles because they don't want you to go and research this. They want it Mm. to be absolutely hard for you to go and find the official book on miracles, but it exists. So they keep record of this kind of stuff. They just name some word that probably ends in the letters T-I-O-N, right? Because it's Latin. They try to put everything into a shun, right? (laughs) They shun everything. But uh, when it comes to your Pentecostal upbringing, I heard another thing, an anecdote you mentioned that they're always kind of trash talking the other denominations. Is that something that was particular to like the church that you're a part of, or is that something that is kind of a thing within Pentecostal Christianity? That's from a personal observation and there's 44,000 different denominations of Christianity alone. Right. So it's like, they can't even, I always point out, they can't even decide They argue about these intricate details, and that was one of the things that they would do at my church. There was always like these missionary Sundays, and they would bash other countries, and I would always question, wait a minute, but what if they've never heard of our God, Mm -hmm. right? God died for everyone's sins, but what if they were never presented our God, and they're going to automatically go to hell, but then there's this clause where it kind of exempts them from going to hell, and then... I would always think about how I'm going to hell in somebody else's religion and vice versa. So how does that even work out? And again, it's all about manipulation. At the end of the day, I think that organized religion is about manipulation. And as a Pentecostal, even thinking against the ideas, even thinking against the church, even doubt, doubt, just doubt alone is blasphemy. It's heretical. So by me asking about extracurricular non-canonical texts from the Bible, which is what started it all for me, that was blasphemous. That was like, no, those are the work of the devil. But it's not that. It's that it, those other texts that you're reading, like these Nag Hammadi and the Dead Sea Scrolls and these Gnostic texts that predate Christianity, it was un- the underground Christianity or parallels, it's going to shatter your paradigm that you were presented and pushed into essentially. So by them, by those texts breaking you free from what you thought was true this whole time, that's bad for them because then you break away from their congregation and their soul mining pool, I guess you could call it. I think that they're just, they have these pools of energy and that they're able to tap into as a collective, right? Like these different world religions, they all have their own souls that they can tap into some reservoir and Maybe we can talk about that a little bit, but yeah, that's how it started for me when I start to question certain 
paradoxes in the Bible. And my grandma, she's done like exorcisms. She's very religious. And I grew up with my grandma. I grew up living with her since I was young. And then I finally moved out when I was finally starting high school and I could drive. Then I moved in with my dad. And that's really when I stopped going to church and kind of, I actually started doing fishing videos before I ever started the podcast. <laughs> and I had two podcasts that one. Yeah. I had the one on one. That's always been the main one. And then I started the Juan hour, which that's only available on the Patreon now, but it was just like me for an hour, just talking to myself or my wife or somebody. And that was when I was like trying to find my footing in the podcasting game, trying to find that niche, listening to podcasts like Joe Rogan or tinfoil hat. And then I just wanted to really nail it down. And I think I was able to nail it down from like episode 46 and on really is when I started to find my footing. And ever since I've been going strong, man. Well, that is fascinating to hear it go full circle like that. I'm going to end the broadcast. A variation on that too. The, it couldn't be the one hour because Juan couldn't keep everything that he wanted to say to just one hour. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly, bro. That's exactly what happened. I was like, too much information. And if I had a guest on, it would go on for two hours. So I was like, time to retire it. And I eventually did. But then it's like how we're, we're talking about, you want to change of scenery when it comes to talking about these different topics. You want to be able to branch out. So you start your side shows, Esoteric America, Dopamine Deep Dives, Cold Book Club. Let me confirm because you just get, right? You want to change the scenery. You want to change things up and change up the pace and see what sticks. I mean, I think that this is part of the process, really finding your footing. And most importantly, as long as you're having fun, I think that's where the secret is. If you're passionate about something, I think it starts to show in your work. And when people see how passionate you are and the love that you put into it, I think it starts to, that attracts the people. Again, it's got to be good too. You can't just be garbage, but I think it starts off <laughs> by having fun. You know what I mean? Yeah. Speaking of finding your footing, we're just finding our footing here with the live stream. Unfortunately, I'm going to bail on the live stream. So if you're listening to this, well, I guess you wouldn't be because I already ended the live stream, but... In other news, better news, our friend Thomas of Paranoid American has jumped into the conversation. Welcome, Thomas. I wanted to invite you here almost as like a surprise to one and maybe even a little bit of, of a bribe in some way. You couldn't get, get the cake. Mark wanted me to show up in a cake and jump out of the cake. It was going to be like a whole thing, but yeah. I couldn't put it together. Well, well, I he heard knows that we were on the phone for like an hour and a half before we actually. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I heard on the cult book club that paranoid American Thomas here is wearing pasties. So I figured the next step up would be to jump out of a cake. But... You, you know what it is, dude? We're just moving so fast. It's only like those marathon runners that have to wear the pasties. Otherwise, their nipples bleed <laughs> two miles in. You never heard that before? It's no. like we're, we're moving so fast. You don't it's get the it. Friction one. of the shirt. If yeah. Like, if you you run for for two or three hours it. you guys it's are, like sandpaper on your nipples yeah uh, you guys are flipping through the pages of the occult correct, book so bro. quickly you can't be that's chafing exactly your pa your page turning arms you gotta come on keep your arms and your nips unchafed Juan. <laughs> that's right. why does this all look so new to you Juan? you've been doing the occult book club for 13 episodes now this is episode 13 i think that 
I want to know when the last time that Paranoid American ran. That's what I, that's what I want to know. I don't think he's ran. And oh, dude, the last day I was in the military, probably, <laughs> and I hated every single second of it. I've never, I've never liked it. Even yeah. If you've ever seen Thomas's legs, if he wears shorts, and if you see it, they're almost transparent. For a fact, <laughs> he doesn't go outside, bro. His legs are like. I've got a pool. I mean, I'll stick them in the pool sometimes, but yeah, no, I don't like the Florida sun, man. I was born in upstate New York, and every time I go there, I cry when I have to leave again, even though everyone lives in shacks in the town I'm from. Like, the weather's nice. In New York? Miserable. Yeah, Oneana, New York. Oh, right right on. Otsego County. It's right right outside of Cooperstown's, like, the biggest town near Oneana that I'm aware of. Yeah, so you're, you're from the headwaters of the Susquehanna River. Yeah, dude. I mean, that, those Uh-oh. are my roots. It's where I grew up, but I moved away when I was like eight or nine and then went back every single summer for the next four or five years and then didn't go for decades. Wow. Very interesting. So you must know the Freemasonic connections to baseball and all that through Cooperstown. Oh, dude, yeah. Must- Cooperstown, yeah, the Baseball Hall of Fame was like my go-to. I never really liked baseball to watch it but i just always love the ceremony of it not from a freemason perspective but just the trading cards and like their celebrities and do like right. daryl strawberry like these names and jose canseco and i was too young to appreciate what they were actually doing athletically you know what i mean but well it seems like love with the mythology behind them well and to your point great what for turn of phrase there because it seems like theosophy of that day was infused into sports and gave the public these sort of mythologized figures who excelled at their game, whether it was football, baseball, you had these early like legends of this sport. And I wonder how much of that was informed by theosophy and these ideas of the avatars and the ideas of these ascended masters like by being in a hall of fame you're almost like you've ascended beyond the average game of baseball right you're an ascended master of the game so in the 80s and 90s how many movies were there about a kid that gets to join the major leagues or like some huge sports star (laughs) takes him under his wing it was just this non-stop trope slash archetype where it was i want to say it was almost like that wise old man archetype where you're supposed to go and seek knowledge and they give you some kind of supernatural power That was replaced by Shaq and Michael Jordan and Patrick Ewing. And you know what I mean? It wasn't it wasn't Gandalf anymore. It was Jose Canseco. That is a great point. The early like the baseball movies that like are the classic baseball movies. Angels in the outfield. Yeah, they all have some sort of supernatural element to them, though. They do, whether it's just the trope of the wise man and the fool or if it's the angels in the outfield where they're actually like it's got like god commands it because a kid made a wish mm-hmm. about love or so yeah it was well uh, but i but also on top of that there was like major league chew there was all kinds of spoof trading cards a lot of all of the mac the happy meals and like the bring home microwave dinners it was all very centrally themed on baseball specifically baseball and like basketball well, let's bring it back a little bit because this is Juan's inaugural interview still. This is the first time Juan's ever, believe it or not. Not a sports guy, bro. As, as many shows as Juan is, uh, and I have ever done together, this is the first time Juan is getting a proper interview. Grilling? 
on the show. Them? Yeah, well, now that you're here, maybe <laughs> you got that big chef's beard. So who knows? But uh, when it comes to when it comes to Juan's upbringing, I do want to jump back to something we were just talking about before you jumped in, Tom. And we're going to get a little bit more into your backstory too, because when you were on the show. We just talked about comic books, and I I do wanna I do wanna kind of do a, my job as the host here and orchestrate a symphony out of the three of us here. So bear with me. Now, Juan, you mentioned doing an episode with Thomas that you found of the Occult Book Club. You found one of Manly P. Hall's pamphlets pretty early into your exploration of this type of stuff. Now. Given most of your spiritual understanding at that point in time, maybe was based in your role as a musician in the church. You're kind of absorbing a lot of experiences through there. What was your initial take on Manley's kind of, because his perspective on Christianity was almost antagonistic. Like they were antagonistic to him and his subculture. So he was kind of on the defense when it came to Christianity, at least with some of his pamphlets, right? So what did that rub you the wrong way? Did that make you curious? Because I know a lot of Christians listen to these, our show, the show you do with Thomas and the one-on-one podcast, because it's a bridge between what their families are into and what their families think they're crazy for being into, right? Yeah, and like I said, that's a topic a lot of people don't know about on my show that I'm, I was born and raised Pentecostal <laughs> Christian. And when I first came across that pamphlet, that's one of the things I pointed out where it was like you could sense it was a very matter of fact, hey, the Christians have it wrong. Mind you, when I come across this sort of thing, and I was, I want to say I wasn't, I had already been open to the idea that there were other possibilities way before I started podcasting. I think that once I was in high school, I wasn't a researcher or anything, but I was into just the fringe topics, right? I was bringing up the Bermuda Triangle or Bigfoot or all these other just crazy ideas. So I was open really to anything once I stopped going to church and everybody that I went to church with came out as gay or something, right? They came out of the closet and said, oh, you were up there on the altar. I mean, all of a sudden, like you're marrying a chick or whatever, which is fine. You can do whatever you want as long as it's between two consenting adults, but I did see anything like that, any work like Manly P. Hall, if I would have still been in the church, is considered demonic or not of God, not godlike. So literally anything you could possibly think of is demonic. I mean, they'd find a way to tell you that me drinking this Pepsi right now is demonic in some sort of way because of whatever. Who know, Who knows? I mean, that's just the way it is. And I think that, and that wasn't like when I was smaller, I used to go to like an old school. Pentecostal, like the older generations where women could only wear a certain length of skirt, had to be towards their ankles. They couldn't show skin. So it got to that point when I was, when I was smaller and I would go with my mom and they could only wear their hair a certain type of way, very cultish. Like you can only wear certain things and look a certain way. And I think it was like when I started doing research and there was pod, when I found podcasting, I was like, wait a minute. You can, you tell me you can absorb knowledge while you're doing other stuff. You're listening. You can just put it on and, and li- there's audiobooks You can listen to stuff and learn as you're doing whatever, mowing the lawn or do, doing office work, whatever it is. So when I started doing that, it opened up this whole new world for me. 
And then I really started going hard in the paint. And I've always had a thing for history. I was a nerd in, in, in school. So I always had a, whenever I would find something interesting, I'd remember things. So I'd always be the kid that when the teacher would ask, when was the Great Depression? I'd be like, oh, October 29th, 19, whatever. I'd have the, the same exact date and everybody like, okay. And I actually wanted to be a heart surgeon, a cardiologist for the longest time. And I was top of my class for the nursing program. And I yes, I did the nursing program. I did all that stuff. So I was always, I got voted in my class for most likely to succeed, most likely to be your boss, all these things. And then life had a change of plans when I graduated high school. And here we are on the one-on-one podcast. So it's funny how life works, but yeah, I've always had this knack for history and just fringe topics. And when you are able to find a crowd and there are other people who you can relate to in the community, it's, oh, okay, this is cool because... My family kind of thinks I'm crazy. My wife has wants nothing to do with this shit, like at all. She, I can't talk to her about it because she doesn't care about it. So it's like my friends are all on the computer. <laughs> I call my friends on the computer quite literally. And that's, I use the podcasting as a way of getting this information out that I think is fire. And I'm glad some people are there to receive the information. And- of course. Yeah, man. Wow. You kind of remind me of a guy I grew up with named Jesus. He's literally same exact thing. It worked in the church, then went Mm -hmm. and did the whole nursing school route and tried to, and now actually I think he's doing really well in the hospital. But anyways, Juan, you're a fascinating cat. And I do think that the Juan on Juan podcast is a much better name than the Juan Hour most of your podcasts go on for three to four hours because you guys, you and Thomas, have so much to say when we put you two in a podcast room. And uh, I, I know the feeling. A lot of my <laughs> closest friends are now online. And I think at first that was, it was an easier transition because like the whole world was shut down. Like when we first got into podcasting, it was like, right on the edge of a new world, then the whole world gets shut down. And now I feel like a lot of us have different kind of trajectories for worse or for better. But to bring you into the conversation, Thomas, what exactly, because you're kind of, I guess, maybe a step back in the sense that you're just starting a podcast now, your own podcast, but you're not like totally green, even though that's the color of your room, because you've been, you've been podcasting for, I mean, geez, almost as long as this show's been going on, probably more than that. But I remember you, you were on episode 44. So of this show. So for quite a while, you've been guesting on shows. For me, I feel like it's a necessity. Like I would much rather talk to you guys about some cool topics because it's interactive, right? Rather than going and binging like a television show about the same topics because I can't pause that and say, hey, what do you think about that? Or what if this happened? And so I just like, I don't know, like what we do for podcasting wise, for me, it's the best source of entertainment, the best source of just hashing out cool ideas and coming up with new concepts instead of just regurgitating the same stuff that the media is putting out Mm -hmm. where everyone gets around the water cooler and it's, Hey, I've got this new opinion since I saw this television show last night. And the other three people that saw it are like, Oh, what a coincidence. I also have this opinion. Back, 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 back. You know what I mean? They just go off on it. So the podcast and for me, it almost feels like a necessity where I'm not even sure 
I want to be like a podcaster, but I absolutely am convinced that I want to be able to talk to new people to have these cool ideas constantly. Cause I think that a lot of these ideas that come up on these podcasts, they get heard by someone, they turn that into a movie or a book or whatever. So you might be enjoying it years later, but again, it's a very one-sided conversation. So that interaction with being able to, especially being like a co-host on, I also do, uh, what is it? Realities are, sorry, sorry. The co-host and realities are, and then just being able to have say flat earth Dave and be able to ask questions that I specifically want to know answers to. There's no other platform on the planet that lets you get that aside from just emailing someone and asking them a question, but it's a completely different environment of having this two-way feedback. You can see what their facial expression is. You can see how long it takes for them to think about something. So you can judge whether or not they're super confident about the respects, that whole interactive process. There's nothing that can replace that. So mm-hmm. podcasting is the closest thing than all of us getting in a room and just hashing something out. Yeah. Well, and I almost feel this isn't quite possible just in normal life circumstances. For instance, I'd venture to guess that each of us had our own very unique individualistic path into this stuff, which is what makes us compelling and able to have these conversations because we're not new to all this stuff. But each of us kind of went down almost like a hermit's path, at least mentally, in order to get into this kind of stuff, because it requires, I mean, from Manly P. Hall's work to <laughs> all of the different Freemasonic lore and things written about them, things written from Freemasons. And then, you know, I mean, those are just two topics alone. Manly P. Hall's work is a topic in itself that I know the three of us are familiar with, but it's something that you just, you don't share with other people. And I'm wondering if this is almost in a kind of, looking up as many levels as we can down from the highest perspective, if this is kind of how these initiation schools worked on a physical level in the past, but now that we're, I don't know, I hate to use the word evolution, but we've evolved some stages up from where we once were, that could be true. Maybe now we're we're participating in that same dynamic, but it's all mentally. There's no physical initiation schools that we're going into because the information is out there, it's available, but it's not exactly popular, right? So that's kind of where the inwardness comes in. Uh-oh, Juan's got something cooking. <laughs> this is how I feel whenever I go anywhere. If, if you listen to the Occult Book Club, they don't know I'm free in the realization of the immortal reality, right? So it's this is a Manly P. Hall quote. <laughs> right. Well, and that's... Again, whenever dude, whenever I'm somewhere, I always think to myself, like, I wonder if any of the if any of these people know anything about homunculus. And I'll just sit there. And I'll just sit there like, Who out here knows? Oh, you know what I saw on my cruise, by the way, I have to bring it up. There was a guy who had the shirt of the the background that I've had with all the Nick Cage faces, where it's like a whole bunch of there was a guy on the cruise with that as a shirt, bro. It was awesome. <laughs> and I was like, hey, bro, I love your shoes. Like, thanks, man. I don't got a bar called Alchemy, right? Also, did I tell you the story? I did tell no, you. No, I didn't hear the story. It's a, a coincidence that you get on a boat and there's a Nick Cage shirt. Like, I, what are the odds that shirt gets Listen, on the boat? At- <laughs> Mark, 
Let's talk about the experience. It could have been anybody wearing that. Anybody could have been wearing that. It's just the fact that you were on the boat that's important. And that there was a bar named the Alchemy Bar. I mean, is that also a coincidence? That's weird. I mean, And he noticed it right at 322 in the afternoon. Yeah, oh. bro. Three twenty-two. My room was three hundred and thirty-three. Like well, it was all. I wasn't going to ask you about this because it seemed it seemed like you weren't very happy about your last cruise. But uh, apparently, there was some kismet there to meet you on the cruise. So what happened? So I don't know if it's my what I refer to as like my occult ADHD, because I think being in this realm of things, I think. There's a line where you cross. Is everything a synchronicity? Is everything a cult? Is, is everything esoteric? When in reality, it's not. But is it right? Like that, that, is it not or is it like you're in this limbo? And when I went on that cruise, it just solidified the fact that I'm antisocial and I hate being around big groups, big crowds of people <laughs> yeah. and just being around like. So it all started when I was I message or texted Cheney. Right. She's a fellow Florida woman. And I was like, oh, hey, I'm on a cruise, whatever. And I forgot what we were talking about. But I, she's, oh, yeah, people on cruises are in a trance. Right. It's a weird thing to say. Right. And if you think of a vessel, right, like an alchemical vessel, a boat is a vessel, right? They call it a vessel. And I think that I'm not into etymology a lot, but I think that even like language, the way that they word things, I think it has a magical aspect to it. So, when she's all the people in a trance and I'm like, oh, it's weird because I'm going to be going literally into the Bermuda triangle on this vessel or cruise ship. But what are the chances that maybe these people are in a trance? Cause it was very NPC like behavior, just like being off. I don't know, man. I think that some people, they have the homunculus never gave back their driver's seat and they're just operating on whatever it is. Well, right. And this is why I wanted to bring up the occult anatomy of man, because Thomas either knew this or was reading about this, but you explained this in your episode about that book where certain people's consciousness is centered in their solar plexus and they're thinking from that reactionary nervous system sort of mindset. And I don't know how true that is for everybody, but there's certain, there's certainly like an archetype well, it's, it's of It's like person. an animal spirit, but I would actually say, I don't know if homunculus might be one step too far. You're calling soulless vessels and NPCs, but if you look at Bacchanalia or sort of like Dionysus worship where they would, everyone always like, oh, they drank wine and they got drunk. Well, they also tore animals to shreds and ate them live and did all sorts of crazy like just in the like natural animal spirit sort of essence that was just part of the way that they would live through and if you imagine that's the closest that commoners have today is to go on a cruise ship because it's one of the only places where you can just go and get trash and it's completely socially acceptable to day drink to just <laughs> gorge yourself on just food nonstop. And you don't have anywhere to drive. It's just all about entertaining senses for five to 10 to 14 days straight. It all takes place again in a completely artificial manufactured environment, literal fake trees. And you go underground yeah. and there's like environments that they create. And they name it after this stuff. The floating city, bro. But there's no other that I can think of counterpart in the regular, common, accessible, everyday world for a 
blue collar person to participate in that same amount of Roman sort of just like all of the vices jumping head first, that, that kind of Bacchus slash Dionysus cult worship. Mm-hmm. Even if people aren't doing it by that name, it's it really is the closest accessible way to get there. So well, and even, it's not as it's NPC, but it's tapping into that same kind of frenzy. Even mm-hmm. the ritual of the boat. I mean, there's so much lore around being on a boat. I forget if you two were present for this conversation, but I remember doing a podcast not too long ago where we kind of touched on that, the occult aspects of the Navy and how like sea captains would have like rituals where they would like literally beat a dead horse on their ship if they were going over the horse parallel line that goes across some part of the ocean i forget what it's called like the horse trade winds or whatever it is they've got crazy they also have a crossing ritual where they literally cross dress that goes back to like 1800s and before which is always funny when people bring up all of the modern news reports and it's my dudes this goes back centuries before your grandparents were around well and that explains why it's a thing within the elite and the upper echelon of celebrity because a lot of the military was a part of creating that infrastructure that is now like the celebrity industry comp on the whole obsession with these really what they are idols right i mean idols in the sense of to be worshipped but yeah i think homunculus npc i mean that is a step too far i agree with you thomas i think the explanation has more to do with the person as a person as an individual we are all here to go through an experience and to grow right just like you guys were reading the analogy in the anatomy of man on how the they are kind of comparing it to the a plant and how its stalk is constantly ascending towards the sun, right? That's its period of growth. I think human beings, whether you believe in reincarnation or not, I think there's an aspect of all cultures that inform us to be moral and to do something worth accomplishing, right? There's It's just inherent to every single culture. And I think reincarnation is inherently a part of that. And the occult anatomy of man it's so important because we've forgotten it as a society, at least on a plastic, superficial level, right? I think our culture kind of, it wants us to devolve, right? It, what's the word, incentivizes de-evolution and understanding the anatomy of our consciousness and our body is how we ascend past that. And maybe why like the alpha type or like the bro the typical like guy that you would think is an npc just because they're kind of conforming with what society wants out of a man right that's kind of one of the classic meme tropes like for the incels it would be a chad right but i mean i'm not an incel and i can kind of see certain people that i'm like okay yeah this is this is npc at least this is what the meme might define this person as but 
on a well, yeah, there's another analogy there too which would be like the serial entrepreneur that doesn't sleep or see their family and mm-hmm. gets gets a urine on their pants because they're always in such a hurry they can't shake it like that right. that's sort of like trope versus the busker and the guy that's money's nothing man i just want to play my guitar in the street that's that same kind of dichotomy exists where it's i do this for the passion of the love and the art man and those soulless business suits that are just out to make the dollar like that that is the same sort of argument from that kind of a perspective, right? Well, but it's are, like, are both of those people, I guess my point that I'm aiming for is back to that solar plexus comment you made that really stuck with me is are both of the busker and the businessman trapped in their solar plexus consciousness? I don't know if the busker is even a good example of someone who's ascended past that. It's energy. So it flows, right? So it might be in your solar plexus and maybe it rises mm-hmm. and then it goes back down and then it drops even further, right. depending on the, the different types of things you're getting. If you just develop a nasty heroin and sex addiction the day after you just achieved uh, enlightenment, it's not like you hit enlightenment and it's like a checkpoint in a video game. And like, whenever you die, you go back to that checkpoint. Mm-hmm. Like you can always go all the way back down and hit rock bottom. Mm-hmm. I think everyone's seen someone that they saw as the pinnacle of, oh, this guy's enlightener. This guy has got it all together. And then a year later, it's rock bottom TMZ or not, whatever version of that. So I think it's just not like it gets stored in one place. And once once you achieve some kind of like higher plane, you just stay there forever. I think it's like a constant effort. Always. Yeah, yeah, fluid. But it definitely feels like people can be sort of on a general basis classified by which energy center for lack of a better term, maybe chakra is a more accurate term, which wherever their energy is dominant, right? And the idea of understanding this physiology and the subtle nature of your energy is to be able to work with that energy and have conscious a conscious understanding of where your energy is centered, whether it's your solar plexus or your heart or your third eye. I think there's probably a spectrum for each one where you could be living from your root chakra, but the best version of that. It might not be as good as somebody who's living from the best version of their crown chakra, but it's better than somebody who's living from the worst end of their maybe, let's say, solar plexus chakra, where they're like to the average person, they've achieved a lot. They seem like they fit into society, but then there's maybe this kind of inner world that hasn't caught up to what looks like an outer evolution, right? I mean, people can have their lives together or appear so and be like crackheads, right? Or have a terrible abusive relationship with someone in their family, but by all appearances, they have their life together. And I think these imbalances really aren't anyone's individual's fault. It's more that our whole society has kind of lost touch with this way of being. I mean, Manly P. Hall If he was around in our time, he probably wouldn't have written all the books. He probably would have started a podcast. I mean, and vice versa. I think if we were born in Hall's time, we probably would have got interested in this kind of stuff and had to write books about it because what else do you do? Or died of dysentery at age 14. (laughs) Yeah, well, yeah, that's possible as well. He was from Montreal. I think they were... They had plumbing back when he was a kid. But either way, yeah, dysentery was probably a threat to some back then. But I guess I haven't really wrapped up my point with a question. But do you guys have any thoughts on what the diatribe I just gave? Am I off? Do you think there's anything you can add to what I just said? 
still think it goes back to the homunculus. So I think <laughs> and by, by, by what well, we are getting that, there. I did want to bring that up. I was trying what to I segue meant by that to that was from a concept that we more Thomas that we dove into on the Nicole book club where again, quite literally the homunculus doesn't give the driver's seat back. And this is portrayed in movies and in shows that are on Amazon prime, for example, peripheral, watch that show. And it gets into that same concept. It's a recent show too, 2022 or 2021. So it's not like it's Hollywood is they're in the know when it comes to these sort of things. You know what else blows my mind too? And this is completely related, but on the logical tangent, but like one of those weird, these weird traits that almost all animals or at least mammals kind of share in common, humans included, is you give a baby a thing, right? And once it becomes fascinated and you take it away, it's like they want to get it back. And then that feeling it's taken to the extreme is where people turn into hoarders, where they always feel like they need to reach out and grab something and keep it for themselves and make sure that it's always there for them. And I and I kind of wonder, especially after a cult anatomy man and one of the more recent ones where we talked about the Cosmo Conception which was a Rosicrucian book, which I think Manly Palmer Hall got a lot of his influence was from a lot of that thinking. That was by Max Heindel, right? 1906. But I, I wonder, because based on that, it's almost like you're born because with that feeling, because you know that in a past life, a homunculus has a very likely chance of taking over your body and not giving it back. So the second you're out of the womb, no matter what kind of animal you are, there's this feeling of that's mine. I need to make that thing mine, even if it doesn't have to do with food. Like you give a toy to a child or a toy to a dog, right? A lot of the times they can kind of be very protective over that thing. And I just wonder if that is so deeply rooted, not just in the reptilian brain, but almost in like the soul that attaches itself to your vessel with that little silver cord that Heindel talks about. I wonder if that like base feeling I need to make everything mine. I need to latch onto this thing and I need to lash out and make sure that me, me, me is protected. Mm. And that's the thing that everyone's trying to kind of overcome. And that's the, however you want to make it woo woo sounding where you raise it through your chakras or you bring it through the solar plexus or just like general terms of enlightenment. But it might just be that progression of getting over the homunculus that stole your body three or four years ago. Like you got to learn to trust somebody, even if you got your car stolen or something. Like some astral PTSD or something like that. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. Yeah, astral PTSD for sure. Now, sorry, I didn't mean to just flash you guys with the Vitruvian man, but here's the occult. Now there's a dick. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Here's a cover of Manly P. Halls. I don't know if this is the cover because this is just some file that's available on the internet but either way i wanted to bring this up because this is the book that you guys were talking about i think most recently i don't know you might have done an episode since then whether that's released or not i don't know but the most recent episode i heard was about the occult anatomy of man by manly p hall and this version has this really crazy i mean almost over (laughs) overdone chart here what do you guys think of this is this is like all the charts <laughs> yeah, yeah i mean this is kind of complicated but it is conceptually what you guys were discussing when you were reviewing this book i mean this would be if you took every different aspect one of the things that came out in that book and maybe another one was which i fell in love with was manly palmer hall describing the seven seals of the bible as a way that you can read something in seven different ways and have it make sense mm-hmm. each different way. And once you can understand something in seven different perspectives, then you kind of 
come close to becoming a master of that topic. So this is an example of the seven seals, right? You look at the body as energy. There's one. You look at the body as occult anatomy. There's another one. You look at, there's an overlay that the Kabbalistic tree of life, right? So if you can understand it through that kind of a spirituality, that's another seal that you can kind of in a general way. But once you understand the same concept through seven different analogies, then you start to understand it. But if you only understand something through one particular frame of mind, that you're only like one seventh of the way to truly understanding it. That's kind of my interpretation of this kind of like overlay. It's almost like no one would be expected to sit down and learn everything you need to learn from this chart. This would be more of, oh, yeah, these are like the reminders of the different thing. This is like the memory pack mm-hmm. from the top down, but this isn't how you normally look through a memory palace. Absolutely. Yeah, you would want to parse this out and understand each perspective individually, hence the whole analogy of understanding the seven seals. And when I hear the phrase seven seals, I automatically think of the seven glands associated with the seven chakras. Manly Hall says in that book that the, I guess, the height that he could see into the future of medicine, the peak that we could reach would (laughs) be to understand the secretions of the various glands of the human body. And who knows, maybe in some black budget lab, they have it all figured out and they're creating the super soldier serum that's eventually going to create Reed Richards and Captain America and all the rest. <laughs> but but I think that there's a case to be made that people, whether perceived as crazy or not, maybe schizophrenics, maybe mystics, maybe even artists can activate these seven seals. And I guess, in other words you guys put it best, impregnate themselves with the soul seed or the the nectar of that higher level beyond our physical limitations here. And then they're therefore maybe creating an ascended master out of somebody. Just kind of going back to what we were talking about quickly, briefly before with theosophy. But yeah, what exactly does that process look like? Because it's not just sitting around and going home oh, oh, all the time. There's There seems to be a very specialized pathway to make it there, but maybe people fall off the path five steps too soon or something, and they end up in schizophrenia land, and they were just this close to making it. But because our society is, at this point in time, not organized for this sort of to be emphasized, we have people who run a, run astray and they seem like madmen to civilized folk, but they're really actually kind of interacting with something greater. I think that's been the goal that many movements are trying to achieve as far as like this higher level of enlightenment, this by reaching the Godhead, whether that be through Kabbalah, or that be through whatever. And I'm just right now, I'm thinking of the monks that mummify themselves and they go through this whole process in order to achieve Nirvana. And it's a very painful process. I think it takes them about three years where they eat a certain diet of bark and they'll even ingest 
rocks in order to fill their stomach up and they'll go through this whole thing and then they they drink this toxin or this poison to purge everything out from their system and disinfect themselves essentially from the inside out after they're dehydrating themselves with these barks and they continue to eat and rocks and all these different things and then at the very end of their life when they're pretty much withering away from the inside out and dehydrating themselves mummifying themselves from the inside out they will sit in these little boxes and they will have a little bell and they are to meditate until the remainder of their life until they expire and they'll have they have to ring that bell every so often so that the monks that are outside watching them waiting for them to pass on to see if they were actually able to achieve nirvana they have to ring that bell whenever that bell stops ringing Every so often, they know that he passed on. Now, it's funny because their version of it is they achieve nirvana if when they're taken out of that box, they're fully mummified and they don't decompose. They're worshipped as some sort of talisman or deity in their mummified form. But if they're taken out and they decompose for whatever reason because they did these steps wrong, they're buried and they're disgraced because they didn't achieve this next level of ascension and higher, whatever it is. And I think that it even it goes back to, if we want to link the homunculus to it, the in, internal alchemy. A lot of what you were saying, Mark, is making me think of Chinese alchemy, which is a way that they saw the body as the lab, where we are the philosopher's stone and our organs are these, the vessels that, that we're the only creatures who are able to take a substance that isn't, gold and essentially turn it into gold and by that i mean when we read a book and we're able to transmute that book into content and the content is the gold so essentially we are the philosopher's stone turning lead into gold so we ingest all this information and we turn it into gold by putting out these videos or these episodes or music or whatever it may be a comic book pamphlet whatever you name it right that's the gold it's even more so kind of what you guys were describing in that episode of what Manley was saying in the book where our brain has these blueprints for each one of our organs. So there's a as above, so below kind of pattern, these Matruska dolls, right? We have our physical organs, but then those kind of counterparts exist within our brain. And I think there's something I'm getting at here, and I know you both are totally equipped to to match this thought and maybe knock it out of the park, but I do feel like the reason why there's such an emphasis on religion and maybe even cults in normal human society is to throw people off, for in simple terms, from this path, this very sort of defined path that maybe ancient cultures were in touch with in a more cohesive and integrated way. And then since then, it's been secret societies and alchemists and these people who are pretty much like outlaws to the authority, whoever, whomever they may be, depending on which part of the world the and time frame these people are existing in. But, I mean, it's the same story, different time period. Even in the colonial time period, I've found alchemists who are doing these kind of different medicinal tasks to help people. And they had to use sort of the terms that people were familiar with in order to not make them suspicious that, oh, this guy was doing some sort of devil 
work, right? Because <laughs> that was the the thing at the time is if you, you know, screwed up and somebody got sick from what you thought was going to be a healing potion, well, now the whole community thinks you're a devil worshiper, right? So I do wonder... If you were skilled, you could turn that around on them really easily <laughs> by just saying, oh, you didn't have the faith or you didn't... I know you do, are, like mine. Yeah. <laughs> like arguing with a flat earther. I know you are, but what am I? Well, yeah, I guess that is more so what happened where the person who ended up falling ill to the bad potion ended up getting blamed for the evil. Their fault. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, we tried, the, pure. We tried yeah. the purest thing we could and it, she was so evil that it made her die. Yeah, Mercury, go figure. But when it comes to some of the things that we've already discussed with this mummification there are some parallels, and maybe this is a thread too far to the left, but I think you ventured down this path, but Paracelsian alchemy. I've heard tell that there's certain people that existed here in the States back in the colonial times that would take body parts of deceased people, burn them up, and then eat the ashes, and who knows what else, right? So... Is this something that you came across with your homunculus research, like this whole idea of medical cannibalism? You ever heard of the, goodness, I have to, I have to find it, but the, there's this, it's almost like the Philosopher's Stone, and it's reminding me of Indiana Jones, but let me see if I can find the name of it. It's an, we did it for an episode. Is it, where it was. start with an M? Yeah, it starts with an M. Malif. I, talk- I feel like it's something like uh, not melanated man, but like mellified man or something. Huh. I think it's mellified man. So the yeah, here we go. So the mellified man is a mellified man, also known as a human mummy confection, was a legendary medicinal substance created by steeping a human cadaver in honey. Now. The reason I bring this up is because you're talking about medicinal cannibalism, which was a real thing during the Renaissance era, especially there were times where they needed to guard cemeteries because they were stealing corpses. And it's got to do with this Galen physiology, I guess it's what it's attributed to where certain body parts would do certain things. So if you ate right, a lot of, eyes or something your eyesight would get better for whatever reason they would how similar how when you brought that diagram up they associated every single part with a different astrological sign while every single part was attributed with a different magical property or something or other right something along those lines right very superstitious but the mellified man is a very interesting one because it goes back to this chinese alchemy and there's books written about trying to find this. It's almost like a philosopher's stone in human form where if you take a piece of this mellified man, so essentially it's somebody who only ate honey for an extended period of time until their sweat became honey, until their tears became honey, until their feces became honey. And then when they were right at the brink of about to die, they would put themselves in a tomb full of honey. And they would eventually dissolve into that honey. And if you were to take a piece of this honey that this body was in, you would it would heal you. It would be like some sort of elixir of life type of thing. How and do we know? Related. How do we know that's not the honey that Joe Rogan's been eating that makes you trip that they find in the Himalayas? That I is have some of that. Honey that is where the monks be tripping, bro, in the Himalayas. Come on, Joe now. Rogan actually has Terrence McKenna suspended in honey, and he just takes a hit every once in a while when he passes by his body, kind of floating there. So, like a bat. Here, 
to create a healing confection. This process deferred from a simple body donation because of the aspect of self-sacrifice. The mollification process would ideally start before death. The donor would stop eating any food other than honey, going as far as to bathe in the substance. Shortly, the donor's feces and even sweat would consist of honey. And now there's a book that's related to this from the 16th century. Again, a sort of grimoire that's related to Chinese herbology where it would talk about certain fluids, like similar to the Picatrix, where it would talk about, listen, certain nail, like toenail clippings or whatever it was, like were attributed to this healing property. But you had to mix it in with this other thing. So there's always been this fascination with wanting to how it goes back to what you were saying, this microcosm. And in order to understand this microcosm, it would help you understand the macro, which is reality, which is the world, which is whatever else, the macro as above, so below type of thing. So I think that they were trying to, I think this is what happened with religion as well. It went from a very humanistic movement. Hey, we could do everything. We can hear ourselves. We can do all this. To the, hey, trust deity now. You need to put your faith and trust in God because God's going to be the one that's going to heal you when you could have done that all by yourself before that. But there was a there was like a switch in history before. You know what I'm saying? Like they went from polytheism to monotheism. It was like a whole bunch of gods, and you had syncretism where they would take the certain god and put it all into one. But it all stemmed from moving away from that humanistic movement of hey, you can achieve divinity through yourself. And now it's a brokered experience. And it was way more about convenience for the state too. Almost every one of those consolidations from eight gods into one. <laughs> Because yeah. usually what would happen is that like these two cities, you would have these like they would fall and they would both migrate to a bigger city, but they're each bringing different gods with them. And well, no, the, the God of death is our God. And the other cities no, the God of death is our God. So then <laughs> it's literally up to that bigger state entity to be like, well, technically we've got this other God God. Let me tell you about this God. He's got, he slices, he dices, you know what I mean? <laughs> he's got the death God from your guys. He got the death God and he's got a badass eagle on his arm. And they're like, all right, I'm sold. And now all of a sudden that becomes the new guy. And that's yeah. where it's like you get these weird chains where you can follow a God back and say, well, that means this God and this God, because it really is true. Mm. It's almost like following like a true genetic family tree where it's like you are every one of your grandparents, but you're also none of your grandparents. It's like a weird. Hey, I got to cut out, guys. Let's please do this again, because I feel like this could be a. Three to four hour episode easily. Oh, yeah. Well, we're going to plan an occult book club. We just have to decide on a book. But uh, thanks for joining, Thomas. I appreciate it. Yeah, brother. I'll see you guys soon. Thank you. No problem. All right. Well, Paranoid American folks, you know where to find them. Just search Paranoid American wherever you are on your internet browser or social media and pretty soon podcast apps, YouTube as well. But anyways, all right, back to the grill, as Thomas put it. <laughs> this is the grilling. I'm grilling my guests. So, huh, interesting. This puts a whole new perspective on the anthropomorphized candy mascots, mm -hmm. like the cereal boxes and stuff, like Marshmallow Man and all that. Jeez, wow. So the confectionery man, I can imagine, I can imagine that, that is probably something that that would have gone on in in Egypt I mean they had it goes back to the fourth century BCE so I mean it goes Oedipus was talking about it I mean they, they would embalm their bodies in honey 
And even they said even a century later, Alexander the Great's body was reportedly preserved in a honey filled sarcophagus. And it was, again, it was practiced in Egypt. So there is this idea that the body would dissolve into the honey and become this sort of, there, there's a fictional story that I'm thinking about. It's called The Devil, The Dervish House. And it's a, like this Indiana Jones type of thing where they're, ser- where they're searching for this mellified man. Where it's And again, it could have been symbolic because that's the thing about alchemy it exists on different layers of reality or interpretation or whatever you want to call it and it could have been symbolic of something else but i think that there are the people who are going to try these things for there's going to be that florida man who's always going to try and do this for real oh you mean if i can find a body and honey that i could live forever right i can have the elixir of life and i think that's what happens with alchemy i think that some people take it literally some people take it symbolically Some people take it however which way, and there's no wrong way to go about it. That's the beautiful part, because that's essentially what Gnosis is. Gnosis is whatever your truth is to you in your point in time. Nobody can take away your truth from you. Nobody can, right? Whatever you find enlightening is up to you. It's subjective. How everything, I mean, I think a lot of things in life are subjective. Reality, subjective. Life, the purpose of life. Like Who writes these type of books and who is the one calling the shots and... Again, that's why I'm skeptic when something's like, oh, yeah, my God is the God. Well, how do you know that? Or like, how are you so sure about that? So I can feel it. So just because you can feel it means everybody else has to feel it, right? I mean, again, there's a thin line that you are to draw there. And that's really a lot of the arguments that religious people will tell you is, oh, well, I know God is real because I felt him myself. It's fine. I'm sure you felt God, but it doesn't give you the right to push it upon other people. I think that they should be able to find their own way. And there's multiple ways of skinning the cat. It's not just one way. And I think that there's multiple ways of achieving divinity. It's like what you were talking about. That's like I've I've covered essential technology and the different beliefs throughout different cultures and different religions on how they achieve divinity and how they are able to ascend to these higher places to be one with the Godhead. And I mean, you name it, there's everything. There's various forms of essentially the same thing achieving and going to heaven for me it was hey you're gonna have a mansion of gold and you're gonna go up to heaven it's gonna be a great party you're gonna be worshiping 24 7 and for other people like the egyptians they believe the opening of the mouth ceremony where they would invoke entities and things into the mouth they, they, they would if you are of royalty the only way to achieve to move on to the next level would be to have this ceremony that they would do where they would invoke this entity in your body and use it as a sort of talisman or amulet. And they would quite literally open your mouth up after you had been dead. And then that would somehow help you get on this throne or the wings that would take you up into heaven for whatever. It's some weird, obscure thing, but it, it was all related to this tool. But what would happen to the people who didn't have the money to treat their fam- their family, their loved one's body after the fact? Well, they just wouldn't ascend to the next dimension or whatever it is after they died. They would just be buried. And that's that. So it's like almost like this royalty thing. And that's why a lot of kings and things were mummified because it was about this ascension to that next level. And so, I mean, on voodoo, they invoked the deal within themselves. They use, they open themselves up to bring the gods down to them, the loa, the, these entities. And again, in alchemy, it's achieving the magnum opus and being able to transcend dimensions. Like once you achieve the magnum opus, the light from that magnum opus of turning that 
right? The lead into gold, the light from that changes your DNA and you become this homo luminous is what they call it. And you're able to transcend and dissolve out of reality and affect reality on the other side. Mm-hmm. So it's like all these different things that, that all these cultures are going about it. They're all trying to figure out like the one question of what happens after you die, right? What happens after death? And I mean, maybe that accounts for, for near death experiences. That's a phenomenon that people don't really understand. Right. I mean, I was at the brink of death one time when I was seven or eight years old, my, my appendix had ruptured and I think I was 30 minutes. They told my parents I was 30 minutes away from dying. So essentially I was septic when they were pulling me into the operating room. So I was literally at the brink of death as a seven or eight year old boy. Cause my, usually people's append, they get appendicitis. Mine actually swelled up and ruptured. And what that happens is literally your feces, it's leaking into your bloodstream. So you become septic. And that's what happened to me as a little boy. So I was probably 30 minutes away from dying. But I mean, am I saying that gave me some sort of perception to other things? No, I don't think so. But I don't think that anyone really knows what happens when you cross over to the other side. And I mean, at the end of the day, Mark, I think about this all the time. It's like, what if there's nothing, right? That's a very nihilistic point of view. But what if there is nothing? And we've been trolled this whole time. And it's just like people writing fan fiction this entire time. And all these books that we're reading about philosophy and all that's all BS and you can just throw it out the window. But there's also that aspect of me too that I think about is like, why does the paranormal exist? Why is Bigfoot a thing? Why is Dogman a thing? Why are all these things? Why are UFOs a thing? And then I remember, okay, there's maybe perhaps the more logical explanation is that it's not all BS and that there is this other level of reality in which maybe you can tune into or it bleeds into our own and again, I think that's a lot funner than just thinking that there's nothing on the other side, right? I Absolutely. think that we live parallel to another dimension or something and it might bleed into ours. I mean, there are some phenomenon that we can't explain, like the placebo effect. Why does it happen? But I mean, we know that the mind is able to affect and cause a biological change in somebody by them just believing. And it goes back to what we talked about at the beginning when you're in this worship and this environment, maybe it's the way that the church is designed. The churches are designed in a certain way in order to invoke and manage these energies, right? You brought up the Vitruvian man. Well, Vitruvius talks about how certain rooms are used for certain things, right? Feng Shui is a sort of geomancy where it's about the flow of energy in your workplace. And I've kid, I kid around with you guys when it comes to that, but I do think it holds a certain truth to it. Because if you shift things around, it would make sense that everything would get kind of jumbled up, right? It's like when you're having a long day and you sit down to try and have a podcast, sometimes you're kind of cloudy right at first until you start to get in that mood and into that flow state, right? Sometimes podcasts are rocky at the beginning until you get warmed up. And again, I think it's about that management of energy. And I don't know, man, I think that reality is a lot more interesting than what a lot of people think about. And I think that's what I love about reading into all these obscure topics and really finding books that people maybe haven't dove into and reading it for myself and giving my first or firsthand account when it comes to all these different occult and esoteric subjects. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Great points made. And I agree with you. I think it's, it should be obvious to anyone at least listening to this show 
that we're living in a strange reality and there's more than than just what's in this lifetime. I mean, I'm a believer in that, but I mean, people don't have to agree with me to enjoy this show. That's what makes these podcasts and this type of podcasting so special. So openness, right? But when it comes to being open, you're opening tons of books. Be open with us, Juan. What's your process like? Because you know, I'm a used bookstore kind of guy. I love finding a new used bookstore. I think one of the downsides of that is if the bookstore doesn't get a lot of turnover and you go and you exhaust all the good books, well, now you have less bookstores to go to. But I'm working on that. I have tons of books behind me, so I'm in no need for new books. But what's your process like? Because you're kind of different. You're more of a digital guy. Do you rely on bibliographies to venture into new territories or are you just like searching away and seeing what comes up? The one thing, and I think part of my, I wouldn't say secret to success. I wouldn't call myself successful, but one of the things how I mentioned earlier, it's all about having fun about not making it a chore. And I think it's an alchemical process. I research things that I find interesting whatever it may be at that point. And we all have our things, right? Like you do a lot of skull and bones. I talk about the homunculus. Recently, recently it's been something, but I think I'll let you keep talking. I have a a point on that. I think that, I think the trick is Mark to talk about things that you find interesting that you will be passionate about. Cause again, it goes back to that idea that if, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be embedded in that process. And when you put it out there, people are going to probably pick up on that. If it's good, right. It's got to be good as well. So I focus on whatever I find interesting that one point, if I want to learn about X, Y, Z at one point, then I'll learn about X, Y, Z, right. For example, right now I'm learning about Kenneth Grant and the 22 tunnels of set. And you go down that hole, but then that whole rabbit hole, but then within that, you're going to find other topics that are either aligned with your other research that you've done in the past or open up a whole new can of worms. Right. And I think that's what people need to understand that we find our niches, I guess you could say. And then within those niches, we are always expounding and expanding our knowledge on that subject. So for me, it's the homunculus where I'm always expanding my knowledge on that subject not that I always talk about it, but it always kind of sort of comes up in my research and unintentionally. Sometimes it just happens. And there it is. I mean, you can't deny the fact or it's similar to that topic, right? The homunculus topic. I'm just using that example. I'll be researching whatever and I'll find something that kind of sort of relates, but that's pretty much my process. I don't have anything that's like super esoteric. I just, if I find something interesting, I'll jump into it but it's got to be something that I find interesting and I want to learn about because once you start taking on projects where it's just all oh, this or whatever it is, it becomes a chore. It becomes work. And then it just, it's not fun. And I think that part of this is not taking yourself too seriously hmm. and having fun with it because once I think some people take themselves too seriously and I think that's one of the secrets, man, you know what I mean? Just take yourself, don't take yourself too seriously and have fun. That's pretty much it. That's all I can really say about it. Yeah. Well, and I think when you're a host of a podcast, it kind of comes, you come to a point where you're like, well, I don't always just want to go on other shows and talk about my podcast. 
And I think both of us kind of reached that conclusion at similar times. And you found the homunculus and I found the whole sort of scene research, which I've been doing that's kind of led me down a couple different paths from the Native American landscape and the stone structures and then now skull and bones. And yeah, it's just fascinating to, to keep up with this. I know I bust your balls a lot about the homunculus and it's become a joke, but it's a fascinating topic and it has so many connections and it kind of is weird since you've brought it up. I feel like it's become something that it never was in the sense that it was just one of these seemingly, because it is very interesting, but it was one of these seemingly uninteresting kind of like back shelf occult ideas. And you've really breathe new life into it. I mean, I don't know if that was your intention, but I have seen it in other places where I wonder, oh, I wonder how much of this is inspired by Juan's research and all the effort you're putting in and going on shows like Tinfoil Hat and having a bunch of incredible guests on your show. You really kind of yeah elevated yourself through elevating the topic. I mean, do you find yourself, I mean, kind of, I don't know, regretting that topic as your expertise because it, it is funny to be the homunculus expert it's i'm not that i'm unhappy about it i just it's a topic that's it's so bizarre right and in the implications that it carries it are so bizarre and that's what i don't like about it but again we're talking about alchemy and i think that it resonates on multiple different fronts and i think it's about I think it's actually coming up soon. It's going to be even more in the limelight and it's going to be even more mainstream and a lot of more, a lot more people are going to be introduced to the topic, but yeah, I enjoy it. I think it's a topic that it's just, it's weird enough to where it could kind of possibly be true. And I'm a sci-fi fan, but I, I love anything science fiction. So when there's this possibility of this, right it wouldn't be out of the, it, it wouldn't be too far-fetched because, I mean, they're doing that today. They're creating artificially created humans. I mean, there's IVF, which is in vitro fertilization. They literally grow a test tube baby. They recently grew a whole, I think it was a lamb in a false matrix in a, in like this out, this womb outside of the body. I mean, these are things that they're doing. Now, if this was a lost art or technology of the ancients that they were tapping into or if it was more of a philosophical movement, a more religious type of thing, because that's, again, that's the other aspect of alchemy. It's a biological thing. It's a, psych a psychological thing. It's a metaphysical aspect. So there's alchemy exists on multiple fronts. And I think that it's right on all the fronts. It's just how you apply it and how you, and what you do with that knowledge that makes it valid. And so, yeah, I'm, I don't regret it. Uh, and I was actually introduced to the homunculus topic by Manly P. Hall. So he was writing about it in the 1920s. So I actually stumbled across the homunculus topic while doing an episode for the occult book club. And then that just opened up a whole can of worms from there on out. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I knew you didn't regret it. And I almost felt silly asking that because you shouldn't. I mean, it is something that is bizarre. It's interesting. It grabs people's attention and definitely a road less traveled as far as these sort of areas that we walk in. But uh, anyways, homunculus. 
I don't know if we've even defined it. We've kind of just talked about it. And I know there may be the rare person that hasn't listened to your appearance on tinfoil hat or hasn't listened to your show or haven't heard you talk about it before. Cause I think you've talked about it on my, one of our shows before, maybe Illuminati confirmed, but give us a one oh one as we wrap up here, because there's so much information about the homunculus that you've dug up. What I guess I'm asking is one oh one, but also what's really compelling about the homunculus. What should people learn about the homunculus? Cause I talked about it recently in a totally different context with Brandon Thomas, the sort of cortex analogy where they show sort of like a mind map of what your brain thinks your body looks like or how your brain interacts with your body. Kind of different than a homunculus, even though the, if you search the word, you'll find primarily images of that. But yeah, what, what do you think is most compelling? So the term homunculus itself means Latin for little man or miniature man. And the one that I focus on is the Paracelsian homunculus because the term homunculus didn't come into the alchemical sense of the word up until the 16th century, with what, which what some scholars consider a pseudo-Paracelsian text, the, the Natura Rerum, which is the nature of things. And in there, he writes about creating a basilisk, which is the opposite of a homunculus. And he talks about how to prepare your homunculus. Now, Paracelsus is a very weird guy because he really took apart the subject and it was more of a philosophical thing and a physical thing. But essentially, a homunculus is a what I've dubbed it as a meat and bones talisman. You had the likes of Aleister Crowley writing about the homunculus in the early 1900s. I think I want to say 1914, 1916. He wrote about it. He wrote a book, Moonchild, which is related to a sort of homunculus as well. And so it's a meat and bones talisman. And a talisman is a magical thing. It's something that is magic itself. An amulet is something that is supposed to house a, an entity or whatever it is, think about the genie in the bottle, right? Mm -hmm. The bottle is the amulet that carries the genie within it, right? The bottle itself is not magic. So a talisman is magic and a homunculus is a magical little man created through alchemy in order to give the creator godlike powers. Now, that's very specific and it can get, right? Some people will tell me all the time, well, it's it's very alchemical, Juan. It's just symbolic. It could very well be symbolic, but my the evidence that I give to them is these grimoires that are so specific as to what to do with this homunculus in order to extract its magical essence, which is one of the ways that you're able to extract the magical essence of it. And by magical, I mean you can move the course of the stars. You can become invisible, walk on water, become impervious to magic. Again, and all these grimoires from the early 9th century, 10th century, and so, so on and so forth, there are various texts on this. Now, if there is some cipher behind these texts, we're not going to know because we're not initiated and we don't have the keys to unlock it. But it's just very specific that you would talk about, right, vivisecting or dissecting a small little humanoid that you created with the womb of a cow. That's just, it's too, the coding is so bizarre is what I'm getting at. It's too specific. Why not talk about something else and encode it in some other language, but you had to pick the specific language 
right? In order to hide these ideas, if that's essentially what you were doing. And so, yeah, the way that you're able to extract the magical properties of this homunculus is through sometimes destroying it. And then the part where it gets interesting, because this ties into cryptid as well, Paracelsus talked about how if you nurtured and grew your homunculus into old age and didn't destroy it and let it out in the wild, well, it would become a golem or it would become a gnome or it would become a giant or any mythological creature, right? Some sort of chimera, which if we know alchemists were also doing that. They were also doing genetic experiments back then, making chimeras. They were making the cows with the face of a man or right snakes with the face of whatever else. There's grimoires for this. And I've recently translated some works from the 15th century where when you start to really read it and pick it apart, you go, man, what was going through the minds of these people that they're writing in this sort of way? Because there were people just like you and I with these different ideas. So, and I think that's what the homunculus encapsulates. I think it just encapsulates this other layer of existence and reality where somebody would think up of something so bizarre Right. So a lot of people go, well, movies. And when you watch a movie with a good plot twist, damn, I would have never thought about that. I would have, I never saw that coming because again, you're locked into this. We were talking about this. We can call it the NPC mindset or the homunculus NPC mind, whatever you want to call it. But they're so locked into that one tunnel vision or, or reality tunnel that they don't see anything else coming. And when they hit them, when they're hit from left field, they're like, oh, that was crazy. And I think that's what, to me, the homunculus is, what are you even saying? <laughs> you can alchemically make a little person who's magical. Well, and then you start to break down like leprechauns and all these other lures where you go, okay, that kind of makes sense, right? A leprechaun is essentially a little man that does what? It leads you to gold. Well, part of the lore of a homunculus is it divinates for you. It tells you the future. It can tell you all things hidden because it comes from the spagyric arts, right? From the alchemical arts. And then Paracelsus, what I enjoy about the Paracelsian homunculus is that he takes it a step further. And he talks about, you brought up the Virtuvian man. Well, the reason that they drew man like that is because man to them was the perfect symbol, right? God, we were designing the image of God. Well, Paracelsus believed in the in, in pictorial magic, that pictorial magic pictures and images and sigils have, they resonate more with people than any other thing, than words themselves, than music, anything, because they're able to see it, right? There's something about seeing something, right? They always say seeing is believing, but there's more than meets the eye. Well, he looked at the homunculus as a symbol of man. And as this, right, if man is able to create this, he believed that there was a little homunculus within everybody inside, deep down inside of you. And femunculus for the ladies listening to, there's a woman version of it as well, but it was more of a philosophical thing. And if you look back in history to the Chinese alchemists that I brought the picture earlier, they believed in this. They believed that they could, they had a little bit of twist on it, but they believed <laughs> that they could impregnate themselves by meditation. And the purpose of that was the purpose of the golden little man in Taoism was in order to live beyond for the alchemist. It was in order to escape samsara. And I know we've talked a little bit about ascension or 
stepping over to the other side and what you need to do to achieve that. Well, these alchemists, they believe that through meditation and through the reversing of the way of this force field that exists around everything, they were able to turn the light in on itself and create this little person that's in their solar plex. And when the little person was ready to come out, it would be projected out into the ether and it would form this golden little man that would take on its own, have its own consciousness, its own soul, and then would run out into the wild, into the, and, and to exist in this mundane reality for you and you escape samsara essentially because there was a piece of you still in existence in this reality and if you think of gnomes if you think of all these other things did those homunculus that they projected out of their solar plex become gnomes or become these other mythological creatures that we hear about in these ancient scripture i mean the art of alchemy goes back to the days of noah and that's why i said the alchemical vessel the magnum opus there's something about these ancient scriptures, which we've heard it before. The King James Version of the Bible was created by alchemists, and they encoded certain alchemical ideas within these texts. Well, I think that the story of Noah and Noah's Ark or Noah's vessel is one of these alchemical allegories, because one of his sons was supposedly, he learned the arts from Noah. That was passed down again, if you want to believe in the whole Nephilim thing, but essentially that it comes from this high, from beyond essentially is what it is. Like it comes from these entities that are guarding reality in, in the Noah's Ark. It was the watchers that came down and taught men or taught women, right? The arts and all this stuff. And I think that the term watchers is a, an alchemical term as well, right? And the, there's the biblical watchers that they were watching, Right, they're watching the great alchemist that work transmuting reality into existence. And then you have the watcher that watches over your body while you're in the astral realm. Again, a sort of astral homunculus. Another form of the homunculus, they watches your body over for you. And then you have the Cartesian homunculus that we recently discovered, where they talk about in this book from the 1600s about how there's this little black homunculus that takes over while you're in the astral realm projecting your consciousness into outer space. So I think that there's like all these different connections. And then some part of that story is that the homunculus doesn't give your body back. It stays. It's there to stay. It tells you to pretty much screw off after you come back and try to get in your body. You have to bribe it to give your body back because he likes being in your body. So again, there's, there's all these connections that we're not even trying to stumble across the homunculus. And then in this obscure book from the six, from 1694, we find a reference to it. We're like, what? How? Like, we're not looking for it, but it kind of pops its head out every now and again. And I think that the homunculus is, it's got different le levels of interpretation. And I'm here for all of them, man. I think that it's a very interesting topic. And I've traced it all the way up into the 21st century, man. I think that this is a technology that they're still using even till today, right? I think that the elites are tapping into it. But it's changed. It's changed quite a bit. And it's not maybe this little man in a vessel, but something else. Who knows? I mean, if you think of Neo in the Matrix, he's kind of a homunculus too. who's artificially grown in that pod, right? When he steps out of it, he's able to disconnect himself from the Matrix. And we know how that, right? The rest is history. But again, they put this in movies. That, that the stagecraft, if you will, are these cinemagicians. And, and if you think of, Right, the world's a stage and everyone has their own role in it. 
Well, I think that they put these things out there in order to impl- implant them in the minds of man and manipulate them some some way or another. But yeah, essentially the homunculus is a very multifaceted topic that I've done hours and hours of research into. And it feels like whenever I feel like I've reached the end of that tunnel, something else pops up that is related to it. And it's just a never ending thing. And that's what people have to understand how I talked to you, how I mentioned at the beginning, a lot of these topics, we're going to continue to talk about them because we're always doing research. We're always reading. We're always doing some sort of learning and there's going to be developments. We can't just go on one podcast. And how you said, it, yeah, we do three hour episodes, three and a half hour episodes because there's just so much content. And even then those three and a half hour episodes aren't enough because it can go on. And not only that, when we do follow up episodes on some of these episodes because they're that deep and also the people listening, they'll send me stuff all the time. That's fire. And they'll send me one sentence that can take me down a two hour rabbit hole. Sometimes speaking of, you said something earlier that I'm still stuck on. You said the opposite of a homunculus is a basilisk. Now I've seen basilisks before. Uh, I've seen them in books type. I used to get when I was a you kid. You haven't seen them because you die when you see them. <laughs> well, I've seen <laughs> illustrations of them and they look like, quite frankly, they just look like iguanas, like some kind of weird, like lizard. So yeah, I don't know. Or How do we know that's what they look like? Because according to you, the basilisk is the omen of death. Now, What's the story with that? Is that like somebody tries to make a homunculus, they accidentally make a basilisk, and now they're dead? What's the scoop with the basilisk? So it's very misogynist, I guess if you want to. It's very sexist in this era in time. And they, the purest form of man that comes from the sperm is the homunculus. And the basilisk comes from the menstrual blood of women. And the one that came up with this was Paracelsus, who was a very eccentric guy. And that could be a whole two hour episode on his own. But essentially, they saw women as lesser beings because they lacked the male appendage. If you catch my drift. So when he took the menstrual blood of a woman and did the same process as it is to make a homunculus incubated for 40 days, it came out with this beast that he labeled a basilisk that had the stare of a woman who was menstruating because they said the glare of a woman who was menstruating, it can, I think they, they say it can sour your wine by just her breathing on it or something. It's very misogynist and very sexist, right? Is what I'm getting at. But if it's true, if it happens or not, again, I don't know. And I mean, maybe these alchemists could have been tapping into something that we're missing today. Yeah. Some sort of technology. I mean, if you look at Prague. That's, that's and, an unfair, that's an unfair, not your fault, but on their part. Yeah. That's like going to one restaurant and getting something off the menu and then going to another restaurant and diving in the dumpster and being like, oh, this restaurant sucks. Isn't menstrual blood, I'm not trying to be crass here, but isn't menstrual blood like, it's a, it's a form of cleaning each month. It's not, it's not equivalent to sperm. Equivalent to right, sperm would be the egg. The yeah. But it's Aristotelian biology, bro, which ruled. They believe that people who had, they, they believe that putrefaction would bring forth new life. That they believe that when the chicken was warming up the egg, it was actually rotting the egg huh. and creating that chicken that would come out. That's why they were like, hey, 
because it was purely observation. And, right, and that's, right, right. that's why I, that's again, Rene Descartes, I think therefore I am because he thought that your senses could be tricked and that they could be tricked by a demon of some sorts that could manipulate your senses. So I think that it plays into what I've been talking about this whole time, that there maybe is a level of existence, a layer of reality that we're not able to tap into because we're solely acting upon what we can see and observe. And this is what these guys were doing in the 16th century. They were observing that somebody had lice and Aristotle, Aristotle was like, ah, well, right. It that, comes from your too. There's too much moisture in your body, Mark. So you're creating these, these, these mites right. that are in your hair. It's no, that's not, that's not what ha- what's happening. But right. when they were seeing it and the, the pimples would pop and the little lice would come out that, oh, oh you're creating that yourself. Well, and it, part of that was, and it's a shame Thomas isn't here anymore, because this is something you two were speaking about, was how Manly encouraged the process of analogy in order to understand the world around you. And I think, yeah, when all you have is observ- observation and analogy to go off, you're probably going to make some, you might be a little, I guess, actually, to rephrase that, your accuracy is defined by your observation, right? So now we can observe things on a microscopic level because of telescopic technology and whatnot. You're looking into a culted world that you wouldn't otherwise see if you didn't have this instrument. So again, it's a world that exists. Well, and also on another level, again, not to be crass here, but, you know, I don't know how many guys in Paracelsus's day were getting their ladies wet. I mean, back then it was all about just procreation procreation, and don't do anything nasty because God might send us all to hell. So maybe they didn't really know about women's, the finer aspects of women's sexual organs, like the the whole ins and outs and so on and so forth. They saw women as incubators and i mean yeah. this is you know, this is a quote that they saw him as purely as a substrate for man and again i don't agree with that but this was what in the 16th century this is something that they were thinking about back then and those were the assumptions that they were making right so and again there there's these things that you can use to pick up a, to pick apart the subject and go oh, okay these guys were crazy but there's still a possibility. There's still a possibility. Well, and, and it's not, and Mark, it's not just like any regular hillbilly in the boonies that's mixed. Paracelsus is the father of modern day toxicology. He is things that we use in surgery today are attributed to him. So it wasn't just some regular Joe Schmo. We're talking about the guy who was a pioneer in modern day toxicology. He was the poison makes the dose. So if it wasn't for this guy, or maybe somebody else would have came along, but this is essentially the first guy to be like, all right, if you take too much morphine, you die. If you don't take enough, it's going to hurt a lot. So there's like the, just the right amount of dosage, right. depending on the person's weight, height, whatever, sex, et cetera, et cetera, that you're able to put them under and you can work efficiently. Right. So even uh, too it, much honey can kill you. According to what we talked about before, I wonder yeah. if Paracelsus had, stumbled upon one of those cases where somebody entombed themselves in honey. That's bizarre. I mean, the confectionary man, as you put it, that's sort of a really sinister phrase. Yeah, the mellified man, or it's, again, it goes, it's related to medicinal, medicinal cannibalism. And again, there's a way of turning yourself into this elixir of life. But then again, we're thinking on very three, 
physical levels. Well, what if the elixir of life wasn't like a liquid or a vessel, not, not even a vessel? What if it was like a breakthrough of the layers of reality? Right. What if it's so right? What if the philosopher's stone isn't an actual stone? And that's just to throw you off, but like this process that that is able to peel back the layers of existence. Like something else, something more to it than just what meets the eye, because that's the exoteric stuff. That's the stuff that you're able to see when you look it up on Wikipedia. The stuff that they don't want you to see is in the stuff in the, these Latin manuscripts that haven't been translated that are stuffed away in these libraries that are hidden in medical journals, right? That that are legitimate medical journals, but then inside of it, they have a whole section on alchemical recipes. Like what? Like, what do you, what, you know I'm saying? So I think that there, it, there was this, I stumbled across the brotherhood, this text that I was translating. They talked about the brotherhood, right? This alchemist brotherhood, this share it with your brothers, like all this stuff. And I think it goes back to this what if societies ruled by this, these groups, these occulted groups, these occulted circles, if you will, that keep and hoard this knowledge to themselves. And they just let you fend for what you can with the scraps that kind of sort of leaks out, right? And kind of whatever people accept in the mainstream. And that's what you're playing with. Because that's the only knowledge you have access to unless you're initiated yeah. into these mystery schools. Yeah. Huh. Jeez. Well, I don't know if this topic scared Thomas away because he did leave right after we brought it up. But but yeah, it is unsettling to think like this is all kind of in the background of what we now consider like proper medical science, not us. But yeah, the Mm -hmm. average person takes for granted the roots of these practices and where they actually go back to. But Juan, we can go on and on all day here. We've done many shows together on both of our Patreons. So obviously, folks, please go and support us both on Patreon so we can spend more time researching and putting together great content like this. Juan will quit his day job and focus 100% on podcasting when he hits that Patreon goal. Me too. Maybe we'll go on the road and visit Juan down there in Florida if more people sign up for the dang Patreon. And then we'll do, we'll do an in-person video down there at the Magic Bookstore underneath the Magic Trees with Dr. Longo and all the Florida crew. But until next episode, Juan, you want to let the folks know where they can find you and what's on the horizon if you have anything that's going to be coming out soon? You can find me tjojp.com, patreon.com slash the one on one podcast. And yeah, I've got some stuff that's in the works that's coming out soon. People will know. I think it's coming out very soon. So people will know when they see it. But they, again, I appreciate you having me on, Mark. It's always a great conversation when we get together. And yes, yeah, so we've done, I think the last I counted about 50 episodes on the Patreon that you and I and Chris have been on and other ones, miscellaneous ones sprinkled in there. So it's over 50 episodes that, that they'll have access that are Patreon exclusives. And again, it's not exclusive because it's any hidden knowledge or anything exclusive because the people who support us, they get a little bit of strawberry on top, a little cherry on top, if you will. They, I feel like the people who support you, they're more important than the regular person because they're helping you, right? They're helping us break out of this matrix. So they're going to get a little bit extra. And I always like to make people feel like they're actually paying for something. And I appreciate any support I can get. So you can find my Patreon, patreon.com slash 
the one-on-one podcast and my website's tjojp.com got the comic book and everything on there but yeah dude over 50 episodes we've podcasted a lot maybe yeah. not on the, my family thinks i'm crazy but we definitely podcast a lot well and that's no hollow offer folks yeah we got a chock full patreon and one is a supporter of my patreon i'm a supporter of his patreon so we're not hypocrites what are you waiting for we're supporting i mean i'll pull up my patreon right now i think i'm supporting 20 different podcasts on patreon so even if you sign up for my patreon some of that money's gonna go to another mm-hmm. creator like one because that's what this is all about spreading the love and hopefully while we break out of the matrix you can elevate and break out of the matrix yourself whether you're a podcaster or not, because you don't need a podcast to break out of the matrix. This is just part of what Juan and I, you know, our trajectories led us to do. Whether you're a small businessman, you start your own company of some kind, man or woman, I don't want to be sexist like Paracelsus, Parasexist <laughs> yeah. over here. Yeah, bro. But, but anyways, yeah, we could go on and on and I'm sure we will be back very soon. I want to join you guys for an occult book club episode, which those shows are those Patreon only, or do you guys put those out for free as well? Yeah, no, those are out in the public feed. I okay, mean, we cool. again, we put out fire on the RSS feed and the public feed. Everybody gets love, but the patrons will always have that special place in my heart well, for supporting us directly. I think the next time you'll catch us together will be on an episode of the Occult Book Club. And until next time, folks, thank you for tuning in and immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now. All right, and that is our podcast with Juan and Thomas. Shout out to them. I've done so many shows with Juan. Uh, You can find them all on the Patreon. Sign up today and support the show. I need your support more than ever to keep this show going. Uh, We're even going to be putting out uh, some new content very soon on the Patreon. So look forward to that. Sign up now. If you prefer Substack, you can also sign up for the Substack. And if you sign up for the $8 tier on Patreon, I'll automatically sign you up for the Substack. But uh, anyways, we got to give a big shout out to our friends over at The Hit Kit, the number one way to get lit. And to boot, it's an American company, American owned and operated, made in the USA, uh, small business. I think there's only one employee. And he's our sponsor. He sponsors the show and he helps keep this show on the air. If you want to join him, uh, support the show. Sponsor the show on Patreon, Substack, or you could support the show by using the promo code CRAZY, saving 15% at checkout when you pick up a hit kit. The number one way to get lit keeps your blunts, your joints, whatever you're smoking on, right there safe and sound with your lighter. And it makes a great gift. You can even get a custom design and get your name on it, whatever you'd like. Uh, go over to The Hit Kit on Instagram or hitkit.us today. And that's it. You know Juan, you know Thomas. They're great guys. They've been on the show tons of times, so not much to say. In this outro, I really appreciate all the folks who are supporting the show. And next episode, I will be doing some Patreon shoutouts. So, If you want to be shouted out and you're not yet a supporter, sign up on the Patreon and you will get a shout out. Anyways, until next time, thanks for tuning in and immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now.
Ready for a career in behavioral health? Earn your online degree at Herzing University. Choose from health and human services, psychology, or social work programs. Gain the skills to work, coordinate, and manage nonprofits. Secure a bachelor's in psychology to study mental health or advance your social work career through our online Masters of Social Work. Let us help you become a social change agent. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Text HEALTH to 85109. That's HEALTH to 85109. Or visit herzing.edu.